Hey, cyber listeners. Hey, Twitch. Hey, Joseph. This is Motherboard Editor-in-Chief Jason Kepler. Uh, Today, we are going to be talking about all things cyber hacking, cyber warfare, and if cyber warfare is the right word to be using alongside this real war that we're seeing in Ukraine. I have Motherboard Senior Staffer Joseph Cox. Joseph, hello. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I think, um, as always, when I host, (laughs) things have been really busy lately, so I am going to be trying my best to explain exactly what it is uh, that's going on in Ukraine, but uh, as we're recording this, things are changing very quickly. Um, I guess first things first, Apple a few minutes ago announced that it was going to be suspending all App Store downloads in Russia. Is this correct? This happened literally like three minutes before we started recording, so we might not have all the details, but but what's going on as far as you can tell? Yeah, yeah, just five minutes ago, um, reporting, uh, I think from a wire service, that Apple is stopping all product sales in Russia. And, you know, if we're going to take all literally, I presume that's going to include hardware, you know, obviously like the iPhone and the Macs, but then as you point out, presumably also App Store downloads uh i know this is something that i believe the ukrainian government had called for what in what feels like ancient history now you know if it was three four days ago something like that the ukrainian government asked for this uh and there was even an op-ed in the washington post that just came out saying why is tim cook so quiet on ukraine well i guess here's your answer now they they, they have acted and alongside of course um the sanctions that uh russian people uh, are going to face i mean you're not going to be able to get an iPhone (laughs) in Russia, it seems. Yeah, and I mean, a few days ago, Ukraine called for an end to uh, software updates. Uh, We wrote about that last week, and Lorenzo and Matt talked about it on the last episode of Cyber. Um, I mean, we need to look at the specifics here, but if you can't do App Store updates on an iPhone, that could have potentially very big ramifications in the long term. uh, We'll see how long this goes on, but in the long term for uh, the user's Russian users of iPhones and of Apple computers. Yeah, totally, totally. I I mean, I don't know whether they're going to stop security updates or not. I mean, that would be interesting, but that's something I will basically ask Apple immediately after this, I guess, because, you know, do you still maintain service of uh, products or do you um, just stop doing that entirely, you know? Yeah, I wanted to talk, I guess there's a lot to get through and we have a list of things to talk about. I think um, the first thing I wanted to talk about was sort of like what we're seeing broadly speaking right now. It's like, it seems like there are kind of the nation state hacks that may or may not be happening. There is obviously physical warfare with, you know, earlier today, uh, Russia bombed a Ukrainian TV tower, I believe. It's it's unclear mm-hmm. whether it was, um, you know, serving internet, but definitely an uh, attack on the communications infrastructure of Kyiv. Um, we also have, you know, we, we've seen some nation state type hacks. Um, nothing 
super disruptive thus far. And then we also have mm-hmm. like ad hoc, uh, I guess, cyber trolls slash just like amateurs sort of lending a hand on both sides of, of the situation here. So I guess what, what are we seeing so far and is this cyber warfare? It's, it's a, it's a conversation that I've seen on Twitter quite a lot and we don't need to dwell on it for a long time, but like what is the level of cyber involvement we're seeing in this very um, kinetic war that's happening right now in Ukraine? Sure, yeah. So as you say, you kind of have the two sides, which is the nation state and then obviously just the non-state actors. Uh, Shortly before the invasion itself, you know, six days ago or so at this point, there was uh, wiper malware deployed against a Ukrainian bank and a number of Ukrainian websites also went offline for some time. Uh, That presumably was some sort of state-sponsored or state-aligned operation. You know, the wiping happens and then the evasion comes in at the same time. Um, There has also been some research that there was also ransomware deployed uh, as sort of a smokescreen to go at the same time as the wiper. So, oh, it looks like we're just suffering a ransomware attack. But then while you're all paying attention to that, there's another piece of related uh, code, which is actually then wiping computers. And, you know, and we've seen... Uh, nation states do this before, uh, and especially Russia as well. So that's sort of the nation state part. And honestly, that's kind of it when it comes to suspected Russian cyber activity in Ukraine, at least public facing stuff that we're able to see, right? Which I imagine some, you know, analysts or commentators or, or just people following this who follow technology and hacking may be a little bit surprised about. You know, Ukraine has been the aggressive sandbox that Russia has used for trying out all sorts of uh, hacking capabilities, you know, shutting down the power grid, all of that. We have not seen anything like that on the same sort of scale that we've previously seen outside of kinetic um, combat. But we have that, and that's basically the the state side. Then, as you say... Do, do we have a sense a, for why we, yeah, haven't, why we haven't seen a bigger cyber attack from... Russia, like, I, I guess people who don't follow this really closely have been texting me over the last couple of days saying like, oh my God, is Russia going to hack our power grid? Are they going to take down the banks? Like that sort of thing. And I think what these people maybe don't realize is it's not like Russia just flips a switch and suddenly all American banks or all Ukrainian banks can no longer function or the power goes out or whatever. Like these systems are hardened. Um, We have, you know, protections and we have, um, you know, the NSA and, and the U S government and U S enterprises have been facing cyber attacks for a really long time and presumably are trying to stop something like that from happening. If that is something that the Russian government or Russian associated cyber gangs are trying to do in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think the lack of or the haphazard nature of the cyber side of things from the from the Russian state potentially kind of highlights two things. First is the the sort of improvisational nature of this invasion. You know, we see Russian soldiers going in who seemingly, according to text messages, you know, they've been widely publicized. They don't even know that they're supposed to be invading this country. They think that they're going to rock up and then people are going to welcome them. They don't really understand they're going into a real war zone. Uh, There has been reports as well of like Russian soldiers not even being able to communicate 
with their central command and they're essentially in another nation not really knowing what to do maybe the lack of um much state-sponsored uh, cyber kind of resonates with that because as you say this isn't just a switch you can turn on it does have to have some element of planning uh, and you could do that kind of rapidly depending on what or with, on what the situation is you know when we had um goose for two years ago instantly spring up when CrowdStrike called out that uh, you know Russia had hacked the DNC along those lines, they can move quickly, but it seems like they haven't done uh, in this case. And then I guess just the second point, I think the sort of low level of state-sponsored cyber is showing us is that at the end of the day, in a kinetic war, it really is about weapons and missiles. You know what I mean? Of course, there may be a cyber element. You know, maybe you have the Israelis hacking a radar system so they can fly underneath in Iran or, or, or whatever, you know, these situations we've seen in the past and maybe we'll see in the future. But at the end of the day, it really is about uh, people, you know? And maybe more stuff will come out, you know, when the tanks get into, into Kiev, you know, unfortunately, uh, pretty shortly. But I think it just shows those two things, really, that it's a bit of a, a mess of an invasion. And maybe it's not the most important thing right now, whereas there is a ton of activity outside of the nation states. Right. I think um, just a funny aside, like Elon Musk said that he's sent over a bunch of Starlink um, terminals to provide internet from space. And I mean, that's, it's interesting. I think it's maybe a little too early for that to be um, kind of, you can't really deploy that in the middle of a war. <laughs> um, you can probably right. get it to certain places, but it's like each, it's kind of like he sent over a bunch of routers essentially. And um, it is interesting that as we move toward space-based infrastructure, it might become the case that, kinetic missiles, bombs, guns, etc., aren't going to be able to easily cut off the internet. Um, right now, we haven't seen any indication that there's been widespread internet outages in Ukraine. Um, we've heard that there has been some outages from the Ukrainian government in, in or local municipalities during curfew or things like that when they've turned it off um, to maybe prevent people from tweeting or sharing images during like a counteroffensive or defensive, um, you know, interaction. But right now it's like there's reduced internet activity in Ukraine, but that's because more than a million people have fled. So fewer people are accessing the internet and there's bombs going off and maybe getting on the internet or watching Netflix or something is not the highest priority um, during right. a war. So um, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, this Conti ransomware gang because they have sort of inserted themselves into uh, what is happening in Ukraine. Um, I guess, first of all, what do we know about the Conti ransomware gang? Like before uh, all of this? Sure, sure. So Conti is a pretty established ransomware gang. You know, obviously there are at any one time between half a dozen and a dozen different ransomware groups doing various things. Um, but this one in particular, they've targeted, uh, I believe, some sort of health facility before. They have tons of targets on their website. You know where now ransomware groups have moved from just locking the data to extracting it and threatening to publish it on their own website and it is very very easy to go find that leak website if you google it you, you will find it um straight away and they put all of their victims up there um 
our colleague Lorenzo covered something a little while ago where Conti hacked a jewellery uh, company of some form and released data from that and it related to celebrities and Donald Trump and some other people. And it also, they later found out after releasing it, it included data uh, belonging to uh, royal families uh, in the Gulf, you know, UAE, uh, Qatar, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, I believe as well. And Conti actually apologized and took down that data uh, because they realized that you probably don't mess around with a state that is as hyper-aggressive as as the Saudis, you know, especially when it comes to um, technical uh, means. So Conti, would, they're, they're just a very significant uh, but kind of run-of-the-mill uh, ransomware group so they were doing that thing they and do a lot of um just re- they do a lot of commodity ransomware as well like they have an affiliate program last i checked like they, they don't they right, sell right they sell their uh, software and, and I mean, so that other people can use it and then they obviously like collect some of the ransoms that come back is, is that that's one of them right yes th- that is sort of the model that a lot of ransomware groups do now and we'll get into that um in a second, specifically the affiliate program, because what Conti did was they came out and they basically published a statement, which, you know, these ransomware companies do statements and have PR approaches now. And they said that if Western or US intelligence agencies hack any sort of critical infrastructure in Russia or a Russian-speaking country, they will retaliate, you know, showing support basically uh, for what's happening at the moment and what Russia is doing specifically. Um, very shortly after that, somebody uh, affiliated somehow with Conti. So, you know, some people are saying it was a security researcher who went in sort of undercover. Others are saying it's, as you say, a member of this affiliate program. Uh, or, you know, it could, it could be anybody that has access, right? And But they took a load of Conti information, including Jabber chats, which is instant messages between um, members of the organization. And last night and, and today, they've been leaking a load more data, such as, you know, a locked version of the source code for Conti that I believe a, a security researcher has now broken into. Uh, so there's going to be tons of stuff coming out of that. Um, but it looks like they may have been an affiliate. And most cru- more crucial than who they are, it's why they did it. And they said that it was to, you know, in support of uh, Ukraine uh, in in the invasion at the moment and kind of really almost an internal beef, it seems, in Conti with them supporting uh, Russia and then this person supporting Ukraine. And they say, screw it, I'm going to leak all of this information. And some of their tweets are even including like, some of my friends are dying in Ukraine and that sort of thing. And look, they're not tweeting their name out, obviously, but, you know, researchers I spoke to did say that although, of course, the main Conti group is uh, likely based in Russia and is Russian speaking. They certainly do have affiliates in Ukraine. Right. So no indication that Conti was hacked. It seems more of an insider leak. Um, but Conti mm-hmm. did kind of insert themselves into this um, conflict by saying that they would hack anyone who attempted to hack the Russians or attempted to basically um, any Westerners who kind of inserted themselves into this space and very soon after that Conti had its stuff leaked um Mm -hmm. as far as ransomware groups go and i don't want to spend too much on this because it's getting into some historic stuff that has nothing to do with ukraine but have we seen leaks like this from inside ransomware groups before like how much do we know about the inner workings of ransomware groups 
There is only really one other one that I can think of because it specifically included messages and it was one that the New York Times reported on a bit and then Wired UK recently reported on. Um, and it was very much the same sort of stuff. You know, you have these internal communications and they can show the dynamic that is happening inside um, a ransomware group. I mean, specifically with this Conti one, there there's a lot of stuff which is pretty hard to determine exactly what it means sort of out of context. But with the snippets that we have seen, there is some very interesting stuff. Like it, it does mention apparently um, somebody from Bellingcat and potentially that Conti was interested in targeting Bellingcat specifically on a report that they were going to... Um, they were in preparation of writing, you know, suggesting that there could be a link between Russian intelligence agencies and the Conti group. Uh, you know, that's always been an assumption by a lot of people. And we have seen some stuff with the zoo spotnet being uh, weaponized for espionage, but there was that. And then also apparently a journalist um, wanting to take 5% of a payout because they offered to help blackmail a client. Uh, a blackmail a, a target on behalf of Conti. You know, lots of interesting stuff like that. And researchers are going to keep going through it because this really does show us the scale uh, uh, of these sorts of organizations and just how they interact internally, you know. Yeah. All right. I want to take a quick break for commercials. Uh, if you're with us on Twitch, there will be no commercials, but we are going to take a break. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, break over. Um, so coming back um, out of the, the break, we want to talk about um, what, what do we know about Russia's current cyber security and cyber warfare, offensive cybersecurity um, capabilities at the moment? Like, as I understand, there are these ransomware gangs. There's various, like, hacking groups that are quasi-affiliated with the Kremlin. And then there's obviously groups that are more directly affiliated with the Kremlin. I mean, it's been a while since we've reported on this, so it's maybe going back a few years and the, the information might be a little bit out of date. But um, is there a difference, as far as you know, between sort of quasi-independent hacking groups that are kind of running running amok, doing whatever the hell they want, and groups that are, say, directed directly by Putin? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a difference between those two, but I would still stress that even the official ones, you know, the ones that work, say, at the GRU, which uh, people uh, in the InfoSec community commonly know as Sandworm, uh, for one example, they can be pretty reckless too, you know, that is the hacking group that went in and uh, a few years ago now, you know, caused a blackout in Ukraine by getting malware into uh, critical infrastructure and in one case literally taking the mouse cursor and then clicking each part of the interface to shut power down uh, and, you know and a year later they did basically the same thing but with some improvements so there there is a division 
between the the, the more straight up criminal groups who may be weaponized to um do some espionage when it's at the benefit of the Russian state, and then those uh, clearly uh, Russian-sponsored or Russian-run um, hacking groups, you know, actually in the Russian military itself. There is a separation, but the military ones can still be incredibly all all over the place, which makes which makes them so unpredictable, you know. And of course, the the biggest one, the the biggest cyber attack probably of all time, uh, not Petya, that was the Russian state doing something in Ukraine via malicious update in a piece of uh, Ukrainian finance accounting software. And it ended up shutting down Maersk. You know, they, they, they may be the official guys, but they are exceptionally dangerous, but we haven't seen them yet. That's the thing. We haven't really seen them in this invasion all that much. Right. Many uh, of my friends are asking where cozy bear and fancy bear are. Do you know? Right. Right. I mean, we haven't really seen, as far as I know, much leaking um, from the Russian side. A a Ukrainian newspaper has published a list of, you know, an alleged list of the names of Russian soldiers. We don't know how recent it is. We don't know exactly where it came from, although they point to a think tank. So there's there's stuff happening on the Ukrainian side that I think we'll we'll probably get to. That's the next part of the podcast. Yes. That's that's where we're going. But the Russian side, again, not really. I think they have. I think they're a bit. Their, their their priorities are elsewhere at the moment. Right. So I do want to talk about the Ukrainian side because, as far as we know, Ukraine did not have significant cybersecurity capabilities. At least the the government itself did not, as as far as I know, at least. Um, in the early days of this war, you had the Ukrainian government basically seeking a volunteer force. Correct. Yeah, so it was Ukraine's deputy prime minister asked people to basically make a sort of improvised group of hackers and cybersecurity professionals to do what they could. But it wasn't just, you know, go out and do whatever. Uh, They had a Telegram channel, and that's where they're sharing, oh, maybe this target or maybe this or whatever. And I believe through that Telegram channel, uh, these people ask launch DDoS, uh, DDoS attacks against these targets, and you know, twenty five Russian websites uh, were were targeted in that. That's still going. They're still running this volunteer um, force. Um, it, it, but the thing with the, uh, with them in and some of the other ones we'll speak about, it can be pretty hard to gauge the the impact. Um, you know, but there is there is a flurry of activity, not just from them, but f- from some of the other groups as well. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like there's a lot of pesky attacks and like information based attacks in which uh, either Ukraine or pro-Ukraine people on the internet are trying to share information with Russians in general or to, right. you know, take down Russian government websites. Uh, we talked a little bit last week about the fact that there were a lot of DDoS attacks happening those have continued. Um, the Kremlin's website was down in the early days of these of this conflict of this war. Um, I believe it's back up now. Uh, we've also seen uh, anonymous return, and it's it's very unclear like who is who is anonymous at this point. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about that endlessly on other episodes, but you know, sort of people calling themselves anonymous and doing hacktivism have taken down RT's website. Um, they've published, they published a list of 
uh, Russian soldiers, like Russian military officers' email addresses and passwords. Although, really, we have no idea what those are emails and passwords for or where they came from. Um, Lorenzo and I were trying to do some reporting on that late last week. Um, didn't get very far because we weren't really sure if they were old passwords, old logins, if they were you know old breaches that were compiled into a new database and were released or what. I'm unclear whether there was any impact there, but in any case, it's like there is a flurry of activity focused on being annoying to Russia at at this moment and perhaps something bigger in the future. Um, This story that I have pulled up here is Russian electric vehicle chargers hacked tell users, quote, Putin is a dickhead. Uh, There's a lot of that sort of thing, like various defacement. Um, In this case, it was like a Ukrainian-based company that ran a an electric charging station uh, near Moscow or between Moscow mm-hmm. and St. Petersburg just changed the message on um, this electric vehicle charger. And, you know, does that have any impact? I don't know. Um, but it is funny. It is, it does show people in Russia like, hey, this narrative that you're getting that this is a very popular war, that this is a just war um, that's coming from the Kremlin, that that, is not shared by everyone. And obviously a lot of people in Russia are on the streets getting arrested, protesting, um, you know, saying that we don't want this war carried out in our name. Um, At the same time, you have uh, people who are going into Google maps and they're searching different um, like landmarks in Russia. And in Google maps, you can leave reviews for different places, whether it's a restaurant or a historic, like a monument or something. And people are uploading images of, Russian soldiers who have been captured or killed there. Um, We haven't been able to verify what the images are actually from. Um, And then you have something that I guess I wouldn't call hacking or cyber, but it's sort of adjacent where you have um, this TikTok influencer who uh, she basically showed people how to drive a tank. And that's something like a Russian tank. If someone happens to find an abandoned one or captures one, Um, you know, she made this video last year for other purposes, just like educational purposes. And she went and reposted it. It went viral, whether that's useful or not. I don't know, but it is, um, I would say it's cyber adjacent. It's like spreading information, Mm -hmm. sharing information that's not generally supposed to be shared and and that sort of thing. Um, we're seeing a lot of that. What, what, uh, what else, what else did I miss? I guess the Belarusian cyber, well, yes, what they're called. Yeah, the the the, the Belarusian cyber partisans. I'll talk about them first, and then there's just another one briefly. I mean, this is a, a group that has been active for quite a few months now. Uh, you know, stealing various databases, um, shutting down various systems. They previously uh, did a hack on you know train station related systems, and they, and they believe disrupted the movement of some uh, commercial or non civilian trains. I believe. Uh, now they're doing much the same thing because, of course, Belarus is essentially, well, deeply involved in this conflict now, not only going to be a launching pad uh, for troops uh, very soon, if it hasn't happened in, uh, already, but you know, also potentially giving themselves the legal authority to park nuclear weapons there on behalf uh, of the Russian government, right? So the, the cyber partisans, they're doing their thing. Um, when it comes to getting information uh, to 
um, Russian viewers in the same way you said, you know, people uploaded photos to Google Maps because that wasn't actually blocked in Russia, whereas a lot of other services are. You could do it through there. Um, a group, individual, whoever, acting underneath the anonymous uh, umbrella, they did break into pretty major or you know very large russian news services including tas you know the the country's wire service and they put a message there that was up for a little while saying you know why are you doing this etc uh, etc et but the most interesting part i think for us and what we emphasize in our coverage was that the message included uh, the number of casualties of russian troops now this is something that the russian government has not been forthcoming with, you know, obviously. Uh, they only finally admitted somewhat recently that Russian soldiers were even killed or harmed in this invasion. Uh, and then this message that was broadcast on these on these um, Russian media sites said that 5,300, I think, um, Russian troops um, had either been injured or, or, or killed. Um, that figure comes from the Ukrainian military, so it's not a wholly independent figure. But it is a figure, and because the Russian government was not prepared to give any sort of number to its own population so it's more of that sort of thing i mean that was a straight up hack right you know we don't know exactly how it happened but that information was not supposed to be there and then i guess just briefly the last thing is that there is a chaotic collection of other groups that have sprung up you know they're on twitter they're on telegram and it's a constant stream of various claims which have a various amount of uh, maybe truth or ease of verification to them. You know, we hacked this Russian bank, we hacked this airline system, here are screenshots. In a lot of cases, they don't actually dump data, they're doing a lot of screenshots and that sort of thing. Others are like, we found the IP addresses of this, and that's not really immediately useful, and some of them may be hard to um verify you know and i think one of the accounts even said that they hacked signal infrastructure which kind of just undermines all of the rest of their claims because i just don't believe that uh, and signal but, denied that right exactly and there is a t so it just shows there's a ton of activity around this and the vast majority i think journalists are not going to report either because they can't or because it's very very low level stuff but some material will break through that will be significant uh i'm sure yeah, I think it's it's been really tough for us covering this because it's like you obviously see something that seems like a big deal. For example, the the Pravda Ukraine list of names, which was um, you know this Ukrainian news outlet published a list of names of supposed Russian soldiers who were in Ukraine fighting the war. But then you go and look, and it, it's it's quite literally just a list of names. So how do you go and verify that? Like. Right. It's very difficult to do that. Even if you speak Russian and Ukrainian, which we have people on staff who speak Russian, um, you know, we've obviously been relying on a lot of experts and Google Translate just to see if something is worth digging into deeper. But, but for this, mm -hmm. it's like you have this huge list of names that's just been dumped somewhere and there's no context around where it came from or what it is. Uh, you have mm -hmm. sort of this news outlet saying, here's what it is, but Ultimately, they published a two-paragraph story saying, here's a list of 40,000 Russian names or something like that. And then you go and try to verify that, and it's like, okay, is that are those Russian soldiers who are in Ukraine fighting in the war right now, Is are those Russian soldiers who are enlisted and may or may not be 
there? Is it a list of Russian soldiers from six months ago or six years ago? Is it a list of Russian names that just has nothing to do with the military? We really have no way of knowing um, at the moment, but this stuff goes viral really, really fast. And so like I saw that, mm-hmm. that story go around, you know, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 retweets um, and being shared by people who really know their stuff. And so it's not, I'm not trying to say that they did anything wrong because we don't know it very well. It very well may be a legitimate list of names of Russian soldiers who are invading Ukraine right now. Um, But we can't go and just print that. Like we can't just say, hey, Mm -hmm. here's what this is. We haven't verified it. We don't know how to verify it. I mean, I have ideas of how we can try, but it's it's not something that we were able to verify in 10 minutes. You know, it's, it's something that could take yeah. hours or days or longer. And in the meantime, it's spread really long and far. And so, um, I don't know. It's been a lot of that. It's like, here's a dump. Here's another dump. Here's a group I've never heard of dumping something else that they claim is super sensitive. And then you look at it and it's actually just like a reused list of... Um, you know, from a previous dump or something like that, or they say these are internal documents and they aren't actually. And that's not to right. to blame. I think a lot of people are just trying to help, and a lot of people probably feel powerless at the moment. And there's a right. lot of chaos in the cyber world in general during normal times. And this is obviously an active conflict where things are changing all the time. So, I guess, um, how are you approaching our coverage here? now and over the next few days like what are you looking for and i mean what are you expecting to happen knowing that it could change at any moment yeah i think um when it comes to finding particular data breaches or hacks to cover it is focusing on ones that are very concrete you know hackers broke in to these Russian news sites and posted this message. You can verify that through Google Cache, through screenshots, uh, or if you know you approach the company for comment, or in this case, I think TASS reported it themselves. That sort of thing is uh, preferably what to report on because there is cl- there, there's a clear line of what happened and the potential impact of, hey, maybe this hack can make people in Russia more informed about something. That's not to say that the other hacks are not worthwhile or anything like that. I think it would just help to look at some of those other data breaches or actions through the frame, less of we're hacking for impact and more this is people expressing themselves and their frustration over um, this war and this invasion, right? And look, it may not be the biggest thing in the world if if a hacker gets some screenshots of apparently a system inside a Russian bank or something like that. It may not tangibly do anything on the ground but that person is still able to articulate their disdain their anger their frustration at what is going on you know um so you kind of look at those through that frame and then when it comes to stuff like i don't know the wiper malware probably from the russian state in ukraine that's a clear one or this anonymous one on the russian news websites that's much more tangible you cover those ones and just appreciate the other ones as sort of people really trying to express themselves over this, you know, horrific, nearly a week, uh, long period that we've had now. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. Joseph, thank you for being here. Um, We'll be back either tomorrow afternoon or Thursday with a new episode that Matt will host. Um, In the meantime, I'm Jason Kebler. You can find us on Twitter. You can keep following 
our uh, coverage on Motherboard. And I would also recommend you obviously keep up with Joseph. Joseph, thank you for being here. But also follow our colleagues at Vice News and Vice World News. We have people on the ground in Kyiv. We have people um, on the Poland border. We have um, people all over Ukraine. So please uh, follow us and we'll be here. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.